Chapter Five of Charlie to the Rescue. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Five. All things to all men. Under the influence of favoring breezes and bright skies, the walrus swept gaily over the ocean at the beginning of her voyage, with sunsails low and aloft royals and skyscrapers according to captain stride at least if these were not the exact words he used they expressed pretty well what he meant namely a cloud of canvas but this felicitous state of things did not last the tropics were reached where calms prevailed with roasting heat the southern atlantic was gained and gales were met with the celebrated cape was doubled and the gales if we may say so were troubled the indian ocean was crossed and the china seas were entered where typhoons blew some of the sails to ribbons and snapped off the topmast like pipe stems. Then she sailed into the great Pacific, and for a time the walrus sported pleasantly among the coral islands. During all this time, and amid all these changes, Charlie Brooke, true to his character, was the busiest and most active man on board. Not that his own special duties gave him much to do, for until the vessel should reach port, these were rather light. But our hero, as Stride expressed it, must always be doing. If he had not work to do, he made it chiefly in the way of assisting other people. Indeed, there was scarcely a man or boy on board who did not have the burden of his toil, whatever it was, lightened in consequence of young Brooke's tendency to put his powerful shoulder voluntarily to the wheel. He took the daily observations with the captain and worked out the ship's course during the previous twenty-four hours. He handled the adz and saw with the carpenter, learned to knot and splice, and to sew canvas with Fawzan's mate, commented learnedly and interestingly on the preparation of food with the cook, and spun yarns with the men on the forecastle, or listened to the long-winded stories of the captain and officers in the cabin. He was a splendid listener, being much more anxious to ascertain exactly the opinions of his friends and mates than to advance his own. Of course it followed that Charlie was a favorite. With his insatiable desire to inquire information of every kind, he had naturally, when at home, learned a little rough-and-tumble surgery, with a slight smattering of medicine. It was not much, but it proved to be useful as far as it went and his little knowledge was not dangerous, because he modestly refused to go a single step beyond it in the way of practice, unless, indeed, he was urgently pressed to do so by his patients. In virtue of his attainments, real and supposed, he came to be recognized as a doctor of the ship, for the walrus carried no medical man. "'Look here, Brooke,' said the only passenger on board, a youth of somewhat delicate constitution, who was making the voyage for the sake of his health. "'I've got horrible toothache. Do you think you can do anything for me?' "'Let's have a look at it,' said Charlie with kindly entrance, though he felt half inclined to smile at the intensely lugubrious expression of the youth's face. "'Why, Raywood, that is indeed a bad tooth. Nothing that I know of will improve it. There's a cavern in it, big and black enough to call to remembrance the black hole of Calcutta. A red-hot wire might destroy the nerve, but I never saw one used, and should not like to try it.' "'Horrible!' exclaimed Raywood. "'I've been mad with pain all the morning, and can't afford to be driven madder. Perhaps somewhere in, or other in the ship—' "'There may be a, a thing on me.' "'A what on me?' inquired the other. "'A key, or or pincers,' groaned Raywood. "'For extracting. Oh, man, couldn't you pull it out?' "'Easily,' said Charlie, with a smile. "'I've got a pair of forceps. "'Always carry them in case of need, "'but never use them unless the patient is very bad "'and must have it out.' "'Poor Raywood protested with another door "'that his was a case in point, and it must come out. "'So Charlie sought for and found his forceps. "'It won't take long, I suppose,' "'said the patient rather nervously as he opened his mouth. Oh, no, only a moment, or a fearful yell, followed by a gasp, announced to the whole ship's company that a crisis of some sort had been
been passed by some one, and the expert, though immature dentist, congratulated his patient on his deliverance from the enemy. Only three of the ship's company, however, had witnessed the operation. One was Dick Darvall, the seaman who chanced to be steering at the time, and who could see through the open skylight what was being enacted in the cabin. Another was the captain, who stood beside him. The third was the cabin boy, Will Ward, who chanced to be cleaning some brasses about the skylight at the time, and was transfixed by what we may style delightfully horrible sensation. These three watched the proceedings with profound interest, some sympathy, and not a little amusement. "'Mind your helm, Derval,' said the captain, stifling a yaw as the yell referred to burst in his ears. "'Aye, aye, sir,' responded the seaman, bringing his mind back to his duty, as he bestowed a week on the brash-polishing cabin boy. "'He's up to everything.' said Jervall in a loud voice, referring to our hero, from pigeon-toss to manslaughter, responded the boy with a broad grin. "'I do believe, Mr. Brooke, that you can turn your hand to anything,' said Captain Stride, as Charlie came on deck a few minutes later. "'Did you ever study doctoring or surgery?' "'Not regularly,' answered Charlie, "'but occasionally I've had the chance of visiting hospitals and dissecting rooms, besides hearing lectures on anatomy, and I've taken advantage of my opportunities. Besides, I'm fond of mechanics, and tooth-drawing is somewhat mechanical.' Of course, I make no pretension to a knowledge of regular dentistry, which involves, I believe, a scientific and prolonged education. Maybe so, Mr. Brooke, returned the captain, but your knowledge seems deep and extensive enough to me, for, except in the matter of navigation, I haven't myself had much schooling, but I do like to see a fellow that can use his hands. As I said to my missus, not two days before I left her, Maggie, says I, a man that can't turn his hands to anything ain't worth his salt. For why? He's useless at sea, and, by consequence, can't be of much value on land. "'Your reasoning is unanswerable,' returned Charlie with a laugh. "'Not so sure of that,' rejoined the captain, with a modestly dubious shake of his head. "'Leastwise, however unanswerable it may be, my missus always managed to answer it, somehow.' At that moment one of the sailors came aft to relieve the man at the wheel. Dick Durval was a grave, tall, dark, and handsome man, about five-and-twenty, with a huge black beard, as fine a seaman as one could wish to see standing at a ship's helm. But he limped when he left his post and went forward. "'How's the leg to-day, Darval?' asked young Brooke, as the man passed. "'Better, sir, thank you. That's well. I'll change the dressing in half an hour. Don't disturb it till I come.' "'Thank you, sir. I won't.' "'Now then, Raywood,' said Charlie, descending to the cabin, where his patient was already busy reading Maury's Physical Geography of the Sea. "'Let's have a look at the gum.' "'Oh, it's all right,' said Raywood. "'You know, I think one of the uses of severe pain is to make one inexpressibly thankful for the mere absence of it. Of course there is a little sensation of pain left, which might make me growl at other times, but that positively feels comfortable by now. There is profound sagacity in your observations, returned Charlie, as he gave the gum a squeeze that for a moment or two removed the comfort. There now, don't suck it, else you renew the bleeding. Keep your mouth shut. With this caution, the amateur dentist left the cabin and proceeded to the fore part of the vessel. In passing the steward's pantry, a youthful voice arrested him. Oh, please, sir, said Wilbur, the cabin boy, advancing with his slate in his hand i can't make out the sum you sent me yesterday and i'm quite sure i've tried and tried as hard as ever i could to understand it let me see said his friend taking the slate and sitting down on a locker have you read over the rule carefully yes sir i have a dozen times at least but it won't come right answered the boy with wrinkles enough on his young brow to indicate the very depths of puzzlement fetch the book will and let's examine it the book was brought and at his teacher's request the boy read Add the interest to the principal, and then multiply by— Multiply? Charlie interrupted. Look! Pointed to the sum on the slate, and repeated, Multiply. Oh! 
exclaimed the cabin boy with a gasp of relief and wide open eyes. I've divided! That's so, Will, and there's a considerable difference between division and multiplication, as you'll find all through life, remarked the teacher with a peculiar lift of his eyebrows as he handed back the slate and went on his way. More than once in his progress forward, he was arrested by men who wished him to give advice, or clear up difficulties in reference to subjects which his encouragement or example had induced him to take up, and to these claims on his attention or assistance he recorded such ready and cheerful response that his pupils felt it to be a positive pleasure to appeal to him, that they each professed to regret giving him trouble. The Boswin, who was an amiable though gruff man in his way, expressed pretty well the feelings of the ship's company toward our hero when he said, I tell you, mates, I'd sooner be rubbed in the wrong way and kicked on the forehatch by Mr. Book than I'd be smoothed or buttered by anybody else. At last the forecastle was reached, and there our surgeon found his patient, Dick Durval, awaiting him. The stout seaman's leg had been severely bruised by a block which had fallen from aloft and struck it during one of the recent gales. A good deal better today, said Charlie. Does it pain you much? Not nearly as much as it did yesterday, sir. It's my opinion that I'll be all right in a day or two. Seems to me outrageous to make so much ado about it. If we didn't take care of it, my man, it might cost you your limb, and we can't afford to bury such a well-made member before it's time. You must give it perfect rest for a day or two. I'll speak to the captain about it. I'd rather you didn't, sir, objected the seaman. I feel able enough to go about. My mates will think I'm shirking duty. There's not a man aboard as will think that of Dick Darvall, growled the bosun, who had just entered and heard the last remark. Right, bosun, said Rick. You have well expressed the thought that came into my own head. "'Have you seen Samson yet, sir?' asked the bosun, with an unusually grave look. "'No, I was just going to inquire about him. No worse, I hope?' "'I think he is, sir. Seems to me that he ain't long for this world. The life's been too much for him. He never was cut out for a sailor, and he takes things so much to heart that I do believe worry is doing more than work to drive him on the rocks.' "'I'll go and see him at once,' said our hero. Fred Samson, the sick man referred to, had been put into a swing-cot in a berth amidships to give him as much rest as possible.' To all appearance, he was slowly dying of consumption. When Brooke entered, he was leaning on one elbow, gazing wistfully through the porthole close to his head. His countenance, on which the stamp of death was evidently imprinted, was unusually refined for one in his station in life. "'I'm glad you have come, Mr. Brooke,' he said slowly, as his visitor advanced and took his thin hand. "'My poor fellow,' said Charlie, in a tone of low but tender sympathy, "'I wish with all my heart I could do you any good.' The sight of your kind face does me good, returned the sailor, with a pause for breath between almost every other word. I, I don't want you to doctor me any more. I feel that I'm past that, but I want to give you a message, in the packet, for my mother. Of course, you will be in London when you return to England. Will you find her out and deliver the packet? It contains only the testament she gave me at parting, and a letter. My dear fellow, you may depend on me, replied Brooke Anderson. Where does she live? In Whitechapel. The full address is on the packet. The letter enclosed tells all that I have to say. But you spoke of a message, said Brooke, seeing that he paused and shut his eyes. Yes, yes, returned the dying man eagerly. I forgot. Give her my dear love, and say that my last thoughts were of herself and God. She always feared that I was trusting too much in myself, and my own good resolutions and reformation. So I have been. Tell her that God in his mercy has snapped that broken reed altogether, and enabled me to rest my soul on Jesus. As the dying man was much exhausted by his efforts to speak, his visitor refrained from asking more questions. He merely whispered a comforting text of scripture, and left him apparently sinking into a state of repose. 
then having bandaged the finger of a man who had carelessly cut himself while using his knife aloft charlie returned to the cabin to continue an interrupted discussion with the first mate on the subject of astronomy from all of which it will be seen that our hero's tendencies inclined him to be as much as possible all things to all men End of chapter five recording by esther ben simonides